Communion is important because it reminds us of the cleansing power of the cross. It reminds us of of Jesus' sacrifice, the blood spilt, the body broken for us, given for us. And so this morning we're going to consider what that means. We're going to consider what that means for us. And to begin with, I just want to quickly um, take you back to when I was about 12 years old. And it was the time when um, I'd left primary school, started at senior school, and I'd just begun to take a little bit of notice of what I wore. Um, before that, I was happy to wander around in old football shirts and tracksuit bottoms, mucky trainers, skidding around on the floor. I was, I was a kid, didn't really care what I wore. Um, got to that age, got to senior school, and began to notice that some of the other kids had um, started to dress quite nicely. They were starting to take care of what they wore, so I thought, mm, I'd better follow suit. And I used to get um, a small amount of pocket money each week. It was, it was enough to get by. I managed. <laughs> but you see, there was one kid in our class who's, he was one of these kids who just seemed to be given endless amounts of cash. Anything he wanted, he had. And um, everyone liked him because of that reason. And one day he turned up um, to a, um, a, a party, I think we went bowling for someone's birthday, and um, he turned up in, in a jumper. And very quickly he let people know that it cost £60, and it was designer, and he had the label splashed across it. And being 12 years old, because it had a name we recognised and it had a big price tag, we all decided that we liked it. It was just a jumper. It was nothing special, but that was by the by. And I sort of thought to myself, 60 quid. I could, I, that's, just, that's just beyond my, my wildest dreams. And if I spent that much on a jumper, my mum would kill me. <laughs> and so I sort of started to think, how am I ever going to get an item of clothing that's going to make me stand out? Anyway, the months went by, and this kid wore his jumper on and off, and then one day I was walking past a charity shop. Now, when you're 12 years old, you don't go in charity shops. It's not cool. And I suddenly saw a jumper that looks just like it. And I thought, wow. So I looked around, made sure there's no one I knew, and I went in. And I picked up this jumper, and it was, I think it was £3.50. And on my budget, that was, that was just about affordable. I thought, great. I'll have to go without um, my midget gems this week, but that's okay. So I paid the money, I got the jumper, I, I put it in a bag, I took it home. And um, I was looking at this jumper, and the label in the collar wasn't there, but that was okay. It had the name across it, I thought, well, it might be fake, who knows. And so... I went to my brother's wardrobe and he had an item of clothing by the same manufacturer so I very carefully got some scissors, cut the label out of the neck. <laughs> During, because I was an air cadet, I'd been taught how to use needle and thread, how to sew quite neatly and so I still do all the needlework in our house now. I'm, I'm not too bad at stitching on a button, sewing in a label to a jumper where it shouldn't be. And so I carefully stitched this designer label into the neck of this, this jumper and I got it, I thought, happy days. And then I wore it the next time we had a function. And I was expecting the same sort of response. Madden, 60 quid, wow, that's, that's amazing. But instead, this kid said, 
Oh, I used to have one like that. My mum threw it out. I said, why is that? What's wrong with it? And he said, oh, I was, I was, I was play fighting with my brother and he ripped the label out and I suddenly thought, I thought, I've got his hand down. I, I don't believe it. I was absolutely gutted. And then he said, oh yeah, it had, had a hole out somewhere else as well. And I found when I got home, just under the armpit, there was this hole. And I, I, I sewed the hole up, but I knew it was there. Do you know what? I never wore that jumper again. I was, I was overwhelmed by the shame. The shame, partly, that I bought his hand-me-down, but also the fact that I tried to pretend that I was something I wasn't. I'd lied to people, I'd gone to great lengths to try and make out I was something I wasn't. I never wore that jumper again. You see, we talk a lot about sin in church. We talk a lot about um, uh, the guilt of sin, being released from the guilt of sin. But actually, what's left over, even after we've, we've, we've experienced forgiveness and we can say, yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven, what we're left with is shame. Shame is that feeling that we have when we can't quite bring ourselves to forgive ourselves for our sin. We can say, yep, God, God's amazing, he's forgiven me, that's brilliant, he's, I, I follow Jesus, I'm, I'm purified, my salvation is, is there, but, but actually I don't feel it inside because I know, I, I've got memory, I know my past and I know God knows my past and I can't quite forgive myself. In 2 Samuel, chapter 11, we read about King David. And we see David having to deal with guilt and with shame. And this morning we're going to look at David and we're going to look at how he dealt with guilt and shame. Now this passage will be very familiar to many people, but we're going to go through it because there's a lot in there that we can learn about guilt and shame. You see, David was this warrior king. This is David who, who fronted out Goliath, this monster of a man, armed with a, a sling, a sling and some smooth pebbles. And he flung one and he hit Goliath and he killed him and then he went running up, grabbed Goliath's, sword, chopped his head off, held it up and goaded the fleeing Philistine army. David was a, a warrior. And just before we get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, in chapter 10, we, we, we read in the closing verses of, of that, um, that chapter how David had, had been fighting the Arameans. They'd formed their battle lines to meet David. They'd fought against him, but they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. So David had been this, he was this bloodthirsty warrior. He never shied away from a fight. And so it's slightly strange, therefore, when we get to the opening of chapter 11, and it says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men 
and the whole Israelite army. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us why, but it is slightly unusual. It's recorded in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Now, we don't tend to have a war season, do we? But it sounds like actually in the spring often people had mustered an army, a king would go off to war. It was a done thing. A good king was a king that went off and won victorious battles, wasn't afraid of, 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 of facing enemies and taking new territories or defending his own. David, this bloodthirsty warrior, this, this brave fighting man, he sends out someone else to take the king's men, David's men, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So, right at the start of this passage, we have to think, well, why? Why didn't David go? Wasn't he, wasn't he feeling it? Wasn't he confident? Why didn't he go to fight in this war like he normally would have? Soon he got bored. He got restless. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. It's interesting. I don't know about you, but until I reread this passage carefully this week, I always imagined the woman bathing on the roof. That seems to be an image that has kind of stuck. But she wasn't. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. David's the one up on the roof. You see, this is Bathsheba that's being spoken about. Bathsheba bathing. She wasn't bathing on a roof, knowing full well that the king would be able to see her. She wasn't flaunting herself and trying to lead him on. She was just bathing. Later on, we read that she was purifying herself which means that she would have just finished her menstrual cycle and in line with, with Jewish law, she was cleansing herself. David is the one up on the roof, looking. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So as soon as David says... That woman over there, who is she? Go and find out. Suddenly the, the, the messenger says, hang on, isn't that Bathsheba? Are you, she's married. She's married to Uriah the Hittite, who was one of the 30 mighty men, one of David's best soldiers. You don't want to go messing around with, with his wife. David sent messengers to get her. Again, we don't know whether she went willingly. But if a king sent a messenger to get someone, no was not an answer you could give. She came to him and he slept with her because she had, she, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home 
the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. The purification ritual lasted for seven days. A lady was required to bathe for seven days after her menstrual cycle. It's no wonder then, at the end of the purification period, that she was fertile. It adds up, medically. David slept with her at a time when she was most likely to conceive, and she did. So the story goes on. David panics. This is going to cause major problems. Uriah is a, a popular man. He's, he's proved himself time and again on the battlefield. Not only is he going to pose a physical threat to David, but also politically, this could cause a split. David needs to do something about it. So he thinks, right, I know. I need to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. Before anyone, knows, anyone else knows that she's pregnant, and then it will be assumed that his is the child. But it doesn't quite work out. Uriah and his army are called back and when they return to Jerusalem from the front line, David tells Uriah, go home. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Go home. Take off your boots. Relax. See that lovely wife of yours. You've been away for a long time. Do what comes naturally. But Uriah says, no. No, 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 no. My men aren't allowed to do that. My men have to stay and guard the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to stay with my men. Thanks for, for your consideration, for the offer, but no, this is where I need to be. And oh, it didn't work. The plan didn't work. You see, what David's done, he's committed a massive sin. He's, he, he's regretting it already. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't do what, what, <laughs> what we'd love to say we'd all do, but I'm not convinced we would. He doesn't say, Uriah, look, I've, I've made a massive mistake. I'm, I, need, I need to fall on the floor and beg for your forgiveness. I'm fallen. I'm, I cannot believe I've done this. I don't know what we're going to do. Instead, he tries to cover it up. He tries to hide when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, shortly after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit, we're told when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the first thing they did, when they became aware of, of, of their own sin, they, they became aware, well, we were told not to do this, and now, look, oh, <laughs> they cover themselves up. They hide themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I was afraid because I've sinned and so I've tried to cover it up. David was afraid because he had sinned and he tried to cover it up. He tried to hide it. He didn't want anyone to know. That's how we react, isn't it? I didn't wear that jumper again because I didn't want anyone to know. 
David tries again. He says to Uriah, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remains in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. David plies him with drink. Come on, mate, have a top up. Have, have one more. Come on, let's get the shots in. Let's have, a, let's have a laugh. And then when Uriah is drunk, David tries it again. Oh, I've got an idea. Why don't you go home to that lovely wife of yours? You know you want to. <laughs> but Uriah, despite his drunken state, chooses to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Not only does he not sleep with Bathsheba, but he doesn't even go near her. There is absolutely no way that David, David's plan can be put into action. So it's failed. So Uriah goes back to the front and David has, he feels he has no choice. His initial plan to cover up his, his, his affair has failed. And so he thinks, right, the only person who knows for sure that Uriah hasn't slept with Bathsheba is Uriah. He's on the front line. He's fighting a battle. People die in battles. Uriah has fought battle after battle after battle. He's an incredible fighter. David knows that he's going to have to send him into the thick of the worst fighting. Not only is he going to have to send him into the thick of the worst fighting against the enemy's strongest soldiers, he's going to have to instruct his own soldiers to retreat, to leave Uriah facing an unwinnable battle. And sure enough, eventually word comes that Uriah the Hittite had died. Oh, the relief. Thank goodness for that, thinks David. I've got away with it. It's okay. I've, I've managed to hide. I've managed to hide my sin. I've covered it up. No one knows except me and Bathsheba. Thank goodness. But of course... The messenger who had first warned David, who had first said, isn't that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Um, they'd known what had gone on. Servants talk. There'd been whisperings in the hallways around Jerusalem. People knew what was going on. Especially because when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But you see, David knew something deep down. David knew that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. For a long time, we don't know how long, David carried guilt and shame. We know this because of the psalm that I read earlier, Psalm 32. In verse 3, David says, When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When I kept silent, when I refused to acknowledge my sin before God, when I couldn't confront what I've done, when I tried to, to sew in a different label, cover up the holes and go out proud, head held high, 
convinced that I'd got one over on the rest of the world, that my secret was safe, that my sin was hidden. But you know what? Inside I knew it wasn't. Inside I knew that God sees everything and that actually that shame was eating and eating and eating away at me and it was crushing me and it was killing me and it was sapping my strength and my very bones were aching because it was a burden. Everyone I looked at, it was as if they knew. We don't know how long David carried that around, but it must have been some time for him to write that psalm, to remember that time and acknowledge the, the pain of carrying around such a burden of sin. And then one day, Nathan comes to David. Nathan is a priest, and he says, David... You see, Nathan is no fool. He's heard the whisperings around Jerusalem. He's, he's, he's seen Nathan and Bathsheba together. He's, he's heard the reports from the front line. He's, he, maybe Joab had, had had a quiet word. We don't know, but somehow Nathan knew David's secret. And Nathan says, David, um, got a situation. In your kingdom, there's a man who is very, very wealthy. He's got, he's got loads and loads of sheep. And um, just down the road from him, there's a man who has one sheep. He's got nothing except this one little ewe lamb. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was, it was like a daughter to him. This was the one possession that he had that was worth anything. A traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle or, or other livestock to prepare a feast. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belongs to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. He'd taken this, 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 this one valuable possession that the poor man had, slaughtered it and cooked it because he didn't want to use any of his own wealth. And Nathan says to David, what should we do? David is absolutely infuriated. How dare someone do that? That's so wrong. He should be put to death. That is, there's no doubt, he should be put to death. As a king, as a ruler, I, I, I decide that is the punishment that he should face. Death. Nathan turns to David and says David you are that man we're not talking about sheep we're talking about wives <coughs> and so begins David's time of acknowledging his sin acknowledging what he's done wrong and eventually <coughs> acknowledging that he has sinned against the Lord. There are consequences to David's actions. The child is born, a son, but eventually gets ill. David pleads for his life, but the child dies. David's heartbroken because he knows it's all down to him. David is heartbroken. You see, sometimes God forgives us but says, there's still consequences to your actions. I take away the sin, but I can't take away the consequences. You have to face them, but I face them with you. 
We'll get through this. Just stick with me. Psalm 32. After the process of accepting forgiveness, after the process of, of, of working through the guilt and the shame and, and falling to his knees and acknowledging the, 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 the incredible power of the forgiveness of God, David picks up his quill and writes Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord doesn't count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then, then, then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. <coughs> David had done some pretty awful things. Adultery, murder, deceit, the list goes on. But David eventually got to the point where he recognised that he was free from guilt because he confessed his sin to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter reminds us that in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's talking about Jesus, the one who was sent to be the cornerstone, the most important part of, of, of the building, the construction of what we call the church, the one upon whom it all rests. Peter says, anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. When we stand before God, the glorious truth is that God is not going to be standing there with a list saying, right, how do you explain this and this and this and this and this and this and this? And making us squirm and, and feel so inadequate and, and just keep saying sorry and realise sorry is nowhere near enough and, and he's not going to send us away with our heads hung to, to, to ponder what we've done for all of eternity. Instead he's going to say, you believed in Jesus. You truly believed in Jesus. You were repentant. You acknowledged your sin. You faced the consequences. But because you believed in Jesus, your sin is forgiven. Because of Jesus, you feel no shame. Your guilt is removed. You can come into the purity of heaven and you won't be carrying the pollutant of sin. That's why we need Jesus, because heaven is perfect. Heaven is pure. And as soon as an impurity enters a pure environment, the environment is no longer pure. If we go into heaven carrying the burden of sin, then 
we ruin everything. And so God says, that can't happen, but I do want you in there. And so I give you Jesus. Confess your sin to him. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. And forgiveness will be yours. And then, free from guilt, free from shame, you can go in. Whatever embarrassing item of clothing we've got hidden in the wardrobe, Jesus will wear it for us. He'll put it on, that jumper of shame, so we don't have to. David recognised that. David recognised when it was too late to make a difference on earth. But he made his difference for eternity. And so can we. And that's why when we come before the communion table, it's so important to acknowledge what Jesus has done for us. He offers us the chance to receive salvation, to be welcomed into the courts of heaven. He's pretty good, isn't he? Let's pray.